1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilich, a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the channel. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Jovana Babovic, an assistant professor of history at the State University of New York at Geneseo. We will be discussing her marvelous book, Metropolitan Belgrade. Culture and Class and in Interwar Yugoslavia, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2018. Defying the historiographical conventions of its field, Metropolitan Belgrade tackles the complex overlaps of national and class identity and the intricate ways in which metropolitan modernity was negotiated and created between the two world wars in Europe's eastern reaches. Join us for a dive into the interwar world of Variety Theatre jazz, urban development, and shifting middle-class cultural sensibilities. Dr. Babovich, welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your book.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here.
1: I usually like to begin these conversations by asking the author to position the book uh, within their wider intellectual trajectories. So how did your training and previous research influenced the the writing of of Metropolitan Belgrade?
2: Yeah, thank you. And that's a really good question. I always like to talk about that process of research and writing and how this book came to be. Uh, And so the way this book came to be really was a little bit of my own frustration that Eastern Europe, especially Yugoslavia, was always overshadowed by these narratives of war and political history. And so when I was a grad student. Um, I, I wanted to know more, right? I was reading all this amazing urban history literature. I was reading amazing cultural uh, history literature for Western Europe, and I wanted to know what was happening in our region. I wanted to know what was happening in the Balkans. I was curious to know what Yugoslavia was going through. But especially for the interwar years, which is the focus of this book, um, it's primarily politics, right? It's primarily uh, focused on the dictatorship. It's primarily focused on inter-ethnic struggles. And primarily looking from the lens of the 90s and the aughts backwards, it's primarily looking to answer the question of how did Yugoslavia fall apart so horribly? Not once, but twice. Right. And so I wanted to challenge that. And I wanted to have a little bit more of a fake understanding of Eastern Europe, and especially Yugoslavia in this period. And when I first started. I actually didn't come to entertainment. Um, I first started uh, researching Russian emigres, so folks who had left uh, the uh, Russian empire and then spread across the world. There was quite a large community uh, in uh, in Belgrade and in Yugoslavia, and so I thought they could be a lens for me to understand these transnational trends in the region. But then I went abroad to do pre-dissertation research, and I found this amazing uh, file in the Archive of Yugoslavia, this gigantic box of records of foreign entertainers who had petitioned the state for work visas and were granted every single time without any kind of question, without any kind of problems, were just stamped and allowed to come into Yugoslavia to perform for two weeks, sometimes even uh, for longer than that. And so that's when I really became fixated on this idea of foreign entertainment in Yugoslavia. And I finally found my lens, right, to think about how these trends, especially people, uh, the music, sounds, right, transitioned and translated into the local context uh, in the region. And so I think that was the lens that I started with. And that's the lens that allowed me to think more broadly about urban history and cultural history within the framework of national history that's much more established uh, for
1: the interwar years. This is basically a book that positions a place, Belgrade, within wider transnational cultural fields in the interwar era. Could you perhaps give us a sense of what kind of a place Belgrade is in the early 1920s following the devastation of the Great War?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So in a way, I was trying to write an urban history of Belgrade. right? And what we have immediately after the First World War is, is kind of a city and a state in flux. In mean, Yugoslavia, the parameters of Yugoslavia were not well defined. Belgrade was not the obvious capital either. Uh, and so in many ways, the beginning, a lot was happening and nothing was really static. Uh, and so Belgrade was a small city going in, and a city that really boomed during the 1920s and 1930s. Its population tripled. So just size-wise, we know Belgrade is growing Similarly, because Belgrade did end up as the capital, uh, all the administrative, industrial, economic, and cultural institutions clustered in the city. And so that meant a lot more uh, administrative workers, a lot more cultural workers, and just a lot more industrialists, proprietors coming into the city. And so Belgrade was a place that grew in size physically, population-wise, but also in terms of importance, right? It had to grow into being the capital city of this much larger multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic state. And so in many ways, it was a city that was changing fast. And one of the main arguments I make in the book is that there was a self-actualizing middle class that was developing. And those are folks who were looking to Europe and Europe's capitals as an example on which to model Belgrade itself. And so I think that Belgrade was becoming a European city, actually much more so than a Yugoslav city uh, during the 1920s and 1930s. I think a lot of people who were in charge, a lot of people who were becoming middle class and becoming important urban uh, actors were looking to Paris and Berlin Uh, In London to a degree also in New York and further afield to model what the city they were living in, what they wanted it to look like. And so that meant often the arts, that meant often building a national foundation of identity. It was the capital after all. But that also meant engaging with foreign trends that allowed them to be part of this sort of transnational modernity, this moment of shared interactions, of watching the same films, listening to the same jazz, dancing to the same, uh, same songs that allowed them to share, uh, the experience of other European urbanites. And I think that ultimately allowed them to themselves to become European urbanites.
1: And early on, you show quite forcefully that this small but growing uh, Belgrade middle class greets foreign popular culture with skepticism if not outright hostility. Over time though, foreign entertainment is domesticated and finds its place within Belgrade's and Yugoslav cultural hierarchies. Could you elaborate a bit on that process?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I found that to be really interesting, too. Uh, Peter Jelovic writes a lot about this um, in his in his own work on on Berlin. And, you know, appropriately, when I was researching um, Belgrade urban history, I was reading a lot about West European urban history. And so in many ways, I found a lot of these similarities very much present. And so initially, it's true. Um, a lot of the foreign entertainment was not very interesting to middle class Belgraders. They themselves were becoming middle class. They were trying to develop into this sort of middle class, urban, European, uh, identity. But at the same time, they associate entertainment with low class culture, right? Because if you are trying to become middle class, you're thinking, what is sort of a bourgeois type of culture that I should be consuming? And you're probably thinking of orchestras, operas. You're probably thinking of fine arts, right? However, once they saw that jazz itself had become not just um, popular but also widely acceptable among the arts in places like Paris and Berlin, I think they began to think differently about it. They began to, just like you say, domesticate it uh, into something that is appropriate for a bourgeois audience and something that can very much be um, consumed at an elite level. Now, that said, it was really only foreign entertainment that the Belgrade middle class appropriated into sort of elite culture. Uh, they did not do the same for, you know, your basic brass bands. They did not do the same for carnival performers. Anyone who was domestic they would snub their nose at still, right? They saw domestic culture, domestic popular culture, domestic entertainment, domestic leisure still as very lowbrow. They snubbed their nose at a lot of the local singers and performers. Uh, however, someone like Josephine Baker, who had grown to stardom in Paris, who had toured Europe, right? Who was American. They found her much more appealing because consuming Baker Men consuming Europe, right, or consuming modernity, consuming the sort of transnational cultural moment that could mark them too as European.
1: And and here immediately we come to powerful interplay between Yugoslav nation building efforts and these transnational cultural fields that we've discussed already. Um, how were Serbian and Yugoslav signifiers negotiated? through foreign entertainment among the middle-class urbanites that, that you're studying. In other words, what are the particular uh, ways in which their class uh, loyalties and identities challenged or, or you know, brought into question uh, their national commitments?
2: All right. So that's a really complex issue, right? It's such a good question and such a complicated Issue. And part of this had to do with the fact that a lot of these folks were becoming middle class at the same time that they were supposed to be coming Yugoslav. Right. So there are two competing identities at stake. And so if we think about just national identity to start start with, we know that a lot of people who are in Belgrade are predominantly Serbian. So Belgrade itself had been the capital of the kingdom of Serbia. Uh, Belgrade itself um, had had a large uh, community of folks who had transitioned from the Kingdom of Serbia to Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia inherited Serbian code, the Serbian royal family, and so there was already a large enough population to think about Belgrade as still a Serbian capital. But it wasn't right; it was a capital of Yugoslavia, and so a lot of the negotiation that happens among these middle class urban leaders, is that they're trying to figure out how to best negotiate their identity as Serbs with their identity as Yugoslavs, right? And I was very tempted to make the argument that Belgrade became a Yugoslav capital in the interwar years, but it just didn't, right? I think that happened after the Second World War more so than it did in the interwar years. Uh, and I think part of that had to do with the fact that they hadn't quite bought into Yugoslavia, right? These middle-class folks were Serbian. They pushed forth... Uh, Serbian folk culture, for instance, and were always very much invested in rebranding it as Yugoslav culture, right? So if you had like some folk dances or folk music that was from Serbian regions, uh, they were much more likely to brand that now as Yugoslav folk culture within the Yugoslav regions. That was also the same kind of, uh, culture they would more easily fund. It was the same kind of culture they would more easily promote uh, on air, for instance, when Radio Belgrade started uh, broadcasting, it was mostly Serbian folk music rebranded as Yugoslav that would be uh, played on air. However, they still had to put forth this idea of Yugoslav identity. And so I think that part of what they were trying to do is this constant negotiation of rebranding uh, and almost posturing a little bit that Yugoslav identity. Belgrade certainly was the capital. And so a lot of state things did happen in Belgrade. So like the Sokol Association, which is this athletic uh, cultural national uh, group met in Belgrade and had their large meeting in the early 30s. But at the same time, that was also contested, right? Uh, because uh, there were other cities like Zagreb who had a strong aristocracy, who had lots of European um, European links that maybe could have also very well been the capital and we would have had a different Yugoslavia altogether. Okay, so that's the nation, right? But then this other part of your question is about class. And as these folks are becoming middle class, we really do have to remember that these were primarily Serbian, ethnically Serbian um, folks in Belgrade who were rising in status as property owners, as club owners, as bureaucrats, as civil servants, as teachers, uh, as urban leaders who were climbing in the ranks and essentially creating the Serbian hierarchy, right? A lot of this political historiography that exists for this period does stress the sort of hegemony of the Serbian community in Belgrade and Yugoslavia at the time. I found that to be generally uh, the case as well in my own research. And I think the general attraction that middle class Serbs in Belgrade had towards European culture clouded that a little bit for me uh, because I often found them more excited, actually, about some someone like Josephine Baker than they were about folk culture in general. But nevertheless, when they did prioritize culture, um, they did prioritize at the very top Serbian folk culture, the arts, usually they're performed by Serbians or um, foreign and then foreign entertainment. Everything else was sort of at
1: the bottom. And you mentioned Zagreb, and you actually uncover a very interesting dynamic here in the book between these two major Yugoslav urban centers. And most of us, I would assume, when we think about the relationship between Belgrade and Zagreb in the interwar era, uh, we immediately come to a a sense of tension, uh, political conflict, and uncertainty but you actually show that these two places mutually constituted themselves in a way Uh, by using josephine baker's visit in 1929 uh, you basically use it as a vista into the creation of metropolitan modernity across yugoslavia across these two these two big cities um could you elaborate a bit on this on this new dynamics that you uncover and and argue for so convincingly in the book
2: yeah, absolutely. So that was this is actually probably my favorite part of the book itself. It's the chapter on Josephine Baker. And so this is what happens uh, in 1929. Josephine Baker uh, is hitting up hitting some walls in Paris. Right. Oh, this is the era of nationalism across Europe. We have Great Depression is on the horizon uh, across uh, across the continent. Nationalism is also rising. And Josephine Baker decides to leave Paris where she was living and performing for several years because she hadn't quite been able to become quite Parisian enough in the eyes of the French. And so she hopes to travel Europe and also uh, travels to South America as well in the hopes of becoming Europe in the gaze of others. Right. In hopes of becoming Parisian in the gaze of others. And so in Belgrade, this worked. Uh, She came to Belgrade in April of 1929 and the newspapers, uh, the magazines, general public uh, of these middle class uh, urbanites just went crazy. They saw her as the epitome of Paris and everything French. Uh, the accent she had was supposedly very French. She was the epitome of fashion. She was just fabulous and uh, just really encapsulate everything that they imagined Europe, urban Europe especially, to be. And so she stays for a couple of weeks. Uh, she's showered with attention. The presses cannot stop writing about her. Everything is absolutely wonderful. Then the next stop on her tour is Zagreb. However, as, as you mentioned, Belgrade and Zagreb are different cities. Uh, they have different historical legacies. They had different population compositions. They have different temperaments uh, as urban spaces altogether. And so Baker goes to Zagreb and an entirely different kind of scene unfolds. First, she's met by um, clerics at the train station. She is met by protesters at the theater where she's supposed to perform. When she finally does go on stage for one of the scheduled shows, she is booed off the stage. She has to come out waving a white flag of uh, of defeat and trying to make peace. In any case, uh, her visit, to say the least, goes terribly in Now, what was interesting to me is that both of these reactions in Belgrade and Zagreb in many ways encapsulated the late 20s, right? The sort of excitement about European modernity in Belgrade totally is in line with this transnational modernity that was resonating across Europe. Yet, Zagreb's reaction, right, this, this sort of resistance to Baker, and certainly this was looking at her, uh, her gender, her race, her sexuality very, uh, very critically and very, through a very nationalist lens, was also quite the epitome of late 1920s Europe. In fact, on the same tour where Baker visited Belgrade and Zagreb, she had visited other European cities like Berlin and like Prague, where she was similarly met with skepticism and in some cases uh, physically and verbally attacked. So Zagreb was not the exception. Uh, In fact, Belgrade was the exception. When the tide were beginning to turn, Belgrade was still looking at her for an epitome of European culture. But Zagreb actually had been more in tune with the shifting trends of nationalism. And once Baker visited Zagreb, that is when Belgraders began to change their tune as well. And that's what was fascinating, I think, about that intercity connection between the two Yugoslav uh, metro areas, is that once in Zagreb, a dramatically different reaction had began to form. It was only then that Belgraders themselves changed the perspective on Baker and started to criticize her more. Not fully. It was not a full-on rejection. They did not necessarily uh, retract everything they had said about her. Uh, but they did lessen some of the enthusiasm which they with which they had written about her. And so it had not been the negative reactions in Paris or Berlin or Prague. It took literally another Yugoslav city... Uh, for Belgraders themselves to say, oh, geez, maybe we should be actually looking at this a little bit differently, right? Maybe she is a challenge to our local identities, too, whether they're Yugoslav or otherwise. And so I thought that was such an interesting, um, interesting inter-urban collaboration that, in a way, showed that Yugoslavia was beginning to form As an entity and, you know, who knows what would have happened without the Second World War, because there were more and more of these cultural collaborations. And that's such a good example of one.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Wonderful. And you also showed that over the course of the 1920s and into the 1930s, middle-class urbanites in Belgrade um, tightened their grip on the city and its society, its built environments to edge out Uh, yugoslav domestic performers uh to the outskirts of the city what happens to to you know domestic entertainment industry in this period
2: okay so that was very interesting to me uh because if we think about the interwar domestic entertainment industry there's very little of it right and i wanted to know why Uh, a lot of the people i came across in archives were really Kind of people who would pop in and out once in a while. The only person who I was able to find enough information on was Dragoljub Alexic, who was a street performer uh, and an acrobat of sorts. But most people are really people who are totally ephemeral in the archives. And so they were nobodies, essentially, right? They were people who, I mean, they were somebody, but they weren't important enough for the state to consistently support them. And so I think a reason that we don't have a good record of domestic entertainment, the the reason we don't have any kind of major support of domestic entertainment is because local singers, bands, uh, local dancers, local acrobats were just not interesting enough to middle class urbanites. Uh, In the late 19th century, Belgrade had been full of domestic entertainment. But over time, when they became less I guess, elite-ish or less seen as a symbol of Europe, of something beyond the borders of the city and the state, they simply became less interesting and they became coded as lowbrow or lower class. And so that's not to say that these folks disappeared from urban life. They just disappeared from public life, right? And one of the things that I found is that certainly in newspapers in any kind of mainstream newspaper or magazine there were very few mentions of domestic performers. I, I really struggled to even compile a series of names and to pepper them in every so often because they're important to me, but I just couldn't find consistent mention of them. But the second thing that happened is that they were, while they were mar- marginalized from the pu- public sphere, like in terms of newspapers and publications, they were also marginalized from actual public sphere of urban space. And so over the 1920s and 1930s, um, the local or domestic entertainers' spaces were pushed further and further afield from the center. So a really good example of that uh, is the fairgrounds that had once been located in Kalamegdon Park. So in Kalamegdon, there's sort of two regions of this large urban park that's very centrally located. One region is just nature, it's promenades, and the other region, which is on a hilly section, used to be a large fairgrounds uh, and this would have been tents and Ferris wheels and a place where, uh, you know, a general domestic servant or a general cook or a general, uh, someone who worked at the market, someone who worked at the docks could go and relax and have fun. However, over the course of the twenties and thirties, that began to be seen as an eyesore by middle-class urbanites. And so they worked and worked and worked and worked to actually dismantle the fairgrounds and then to replace it gradually with a fine arts institution like a museum, which they did, and then eventually to uh, add on the Belgrade Zoo. So if you're familiar with sort of the orientation of uh, Kalemegdan Park today, the sort of the region where the zoo and uh, the pavilion are located, that was once a place of quite um, a dynamic fairgrounds that would have been host to a lot of these domestic entertainers. And so where did these people go? Well, they went to some pubs that were scattered uh, on the periphery of the city. They went to the suburbs. Um, they went further afield in Belgrade they still remained there but being entertainers was no longer sustainable once they could no longer be entertainers in the city center and so one of the things that i found actually is that the local industry was really shot um there was just very 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 little domestic entertainment that was being produced and supported the state wouldn't fund it Uh, middle class urbanites would not patronize it uh, and ultimately, there were very few places in the city center proper where it could grow. And so it became a very marginal aspect of uh, of of ur- urban culture as a whole until the very, 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 very end of the interwar years, um, when uh, this performer I mentioned earlier, W. Alexich, created a uh, a film and kind of reinstalled himself into the memory of the interwar years, but a memory he had never participated in. And I can tell you more about, about him later, but um, it's very little exists that was domestic from the time period. uh, Very, very unfortunately.
1: Fascinating. And it seems that the Yugoslav state apparatus plays a very ambiguous role in this historical process. Um, Rhetorically, it is committed to productionism and production of domestic industries, but it's basically appropriated uh, by the middle class element in, in Belgrade. Could you comment briefly on the role that the state itself plays in your narrative?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what's really interesting to me is that the state has this policy of economic protectionism, right? And most states in, the, in this period do. And economic protectionism essentially is a commitment to support local domestic producers. And that stands to reason that local domestic entertainers too ought to be protected. Yet those local domestic performers who petitioned the state for funding, for support, uh, for appeals to join an association, they did not receive much attention or uh, much support at all. And just like you mentioned very smartly that was because a lot of the state itself was run by middle-class urbanites who were also running the associations so like the association of actors association of musicians through state channels so these voluntary associations were very much tied together and they were very much controlled through a middle class and serbian hegemony and so when a acrobat wrote to the association of actors and said i'd like to have membership which would grant me protection which will grant me attention which would help me with unemployment they simply were not allowed to join similarly when a bunch of acrobats said we'd like to form a union for performers of various types they might be able to form that union but then they were going to be funneled under the umbrella of the association of actors right an elite institution uh, governed by middle-class urbanites, who were then, again, going to undercut them and their privileges. And so Yugoslav entertainers were really stuck between a rock and a hard place. They could not negotiate uh, any kind of state funding or support for themselves, largely because um, the state itself was controlled by middle-class urbanites, and these associations that in theory were the were the link between the state and society were also controlled by those same people. And so if you are a random singer or if you're a random musician and you don't fit into the elite or folk category, you're really gonna be out of luck because there just wasn't anything in place. Uh, you didn't have any kind of ally who was going to come and to speak up on your behalf. And some of these performers did try to unionize, some of them did try to form their own associations. Uh oftentimes they lobbied as well for schools, for training facilities that would essentially professionalize them, but very little ever got off the ground. There were a few unions, there were a few attempts at building schools, but they constantly got undercut by these middle-class uh, urbanites who would say, that's not professional enough, that's not elite enough, that's actually not culture at all. And, and it's a sad story, right? It's a sad story of sort of marginalization of culture, which interestingly enough, whenever we have contemporary depictions of the interwar years like if you ever watch a movie about interwar belgrade or interwar Yugoslavia it's constantly shifted to make it seem as if it was this like class inclusive completely diverse crazy urban space but in belgrade it wasn't uh, it was quite middle class it was quite elitist uh, it was quite focused on foreign entertainment whereas these domestic people even if they're uh, written back into history, they just weren't there. They weren't supported. Nobody was helping them, supporting them, or really patronizing them, uh, at least not from the urban power perspective, at least not the middle-class folks.
1: And dovetailing your findings and your sociocultural approach and what we know about the elite reaches of Yugoslav interwar culture, Andrić, Sernyanski, Mestrovic, mm-hmm. Vinavir, would you say that the crux of the interwar cultural intellectual dilemmas uh, of, of, of this new Yugoslav state is, is, is actually a dilemma between the uniqueness of the South Slavic civilizational complex or cultural complex and this pursuit of membership in wider transnational modernities and how to basically... Um, have these things come together in a productive, stable way?
2: I mean, yeah, that's such an interesting question. Um, and I know you've done a little bit of work yourself on Andrej Tunansky, too. So you can speak as well to this. But this idea of like creating a Yugoslav or Slavic or even Pan Slavic identity vis a vis like a more global, transnational European one is such an interesting balance right um right now i'm I'm reading through um i'm I'm working on a little bit of uh, new research on uh on animals and i'm reading through um magazines on beekeeping and they're very much negotiating those same identities in the 1920s and 1930s this idea of are we looking to like czechoslovakia and Pan-Slavic? Uh, models, or are we looking towards America, and are we looking towards England, towards more like European or more transnational ones? And I think Belgrade is trying to negotiate that. Belgrade's culture is trying to negotiate that. Um, if you tuned into Radio Belgrade uh, in 1930, you would have heard folk culture, right? You would have heard broadcasts from Vienna of classical music, and you would have probably heard some jazz and Where is the Slavic or the local or the Balkan or the Yugoslav in that? It's there. Does it coexist with the European and the transnational and the global? Absolutely. But what is sort of like the middle ground? And I think what you're referring to is that a lot of intellectuals, especially during this time, bemoan the loss of or the potential loss or feared, actually, the loss of a Serbian identity, right? Uh, they've worried that if Belgraders were too enamored with Josephine Baker, they might lose their interest and their commitment to uh, domestic performers or folk culture, right? Or even their identity as Serbs or as uh, East Europeans. I think those two things coexisted, like, quite well in Belgrade in the 1920s and 1930s. But I know that there were a lot of people who were worried about it, right? And a lot of those people were certainly intellectuals who thought a lot about national identity, who thought a lot about what it meant to be Serbian in the context of Yugoslavia itself, right? That in and of itself was a worry of loss of identity. Moreover then positioning Serbia within not just Yugoslavia, but Europe seems scarier yet, right? Um, And so, I think that negotiation of those identities is interesting. Um, and I think, I think you're right. I think it, it does in, in many ways encompass that feeling of what it would have been like to be thinking through what Belgrade or what Yugoslavia was becoming in the 20s and 30s. And then comes
1: 1941, and right. German occupation, right. and this uneasy, these uneasy balance between the cultural inside and outside, domestic and foreign, has to be renegotiated again. So what happens with Belgrade's transnational links under German occupation and uh, also after the war, into the post-war era, which of course falls outside of the scope of your book, but I was hoping you could uh, comment on the the long-term processes there
2: yeah sure thing i mean the the german occupation i think changed a lot uh in the way for for belgators in the way that they thought about foreign entertainment i think that's the moment when they began to think about foreign culture not as something they consume to mark themselves as europeans but rather something that they were forced to consume that felt like oppression right and so with the occupation in Belgrade, uh, folks would have been exposed to Nazi films again and again, right? They would have been exposed to very much cultural imperialism that m- several years earlier they would have welcomed wholeheartedly. But with the occupation, that political milieu completely changed the social one. And so when I was doing research for this book, um, I came across this movie um, called Innocence Unprotected, That was uh, filmed and produced by an interwar entertainer named Agli Balakic, and he released this movie. This was the first uh, first color talkie uh, ever made in Yugoslavia, uh, right as the occupation was underway. And in this movie, there's a lot of like metaphors here, right? They're obvious, perhaps, but in the movie, he uh, he falls in love with a young woman. She's an orphan. Uh, he then rescues her from a sort of an abusive, forced love relationship. And he is the hero here, right? Draguli Balikic, the performer, is the hero. And so the metaphor here is, well, Serbia also, right, is an orphan in occupied Europe and needs to be protected and saved. And here's the hero of the day, right? A Yugoslav performer. And when he released this film, it was screened exactly once, and uh, people were so excited uh, about the, the screening that they made all this noise, cheering and clapping, and Nazi officers in, in uh, a nearby establishment came over, shut it down, uh, and it was never screened again uh, until after, well after the war. In fact, the movie was presumed lost. For a long time and destroyed, but Alexic and some of the other folks he collaborated with actually had saved certain bits and pieces, uh, so that in the so- in the socialist period, uh, a filmmaker pieced pieces together and then like re-released the film with contemporary commentary. And so, in many ways, I think that film itself is such a great example of what happens with the occupation. All of a sudden, this this foreign culture that was really peak. European modernity, right, became something that was peak oppression. Uh, And I think, actually, um, in the aftermath of the war, and then especially by the 60s and 70s, Yugoslav cultural producers began to recalibrate really what the interwar Uh, culture was like. Initially, obviously, it's rejected as sort of bourgeois, yada, yada. But over time, people like Bib Alexic are reintegrated into the past and really embraced wholeheartedly as performers that they had never been, right? Alexic never received any kind of support or union membership from the state. But in later tellings of his life, he seems to have been positioned a lot more prominently in that history. And he never really was, just to be clear. But otherwise, what I also thought was interesting, too, especially in the 60s and the 70s in Yugoslavia, and I only did very little research on this. um, This is certainly like a project for a different scholar, a different book. But in the 60s and 70s, actually, um, a lot more... um, Open embrace of foreign entertainment was happening in Yugoslavia. and so it was very easy for performers to travel, to, to perform in the state. Uh, foreign mag- magazines wrote about foreign musicians, foreign actors, foreign performers quite uh, openly. Uh, and generally, I think Yugoslavia was a place where other East European states looked to get that culture right. And so it was kind of like a byway station for culture um, in the socialist period. Um, I think there's some really good scholarship out there. Hadina Mucikic has some really great stuff on jazz and rock. Um, there's some wonderful, um, stuff as well about television. Uh, so I think Belgrade in many ways became more of a Yugoslav capital, but it also at the same time became more of this global space, culturally speaking. And really importantly, right? This is so important. After, um, the Second World War, Yugoslavia also became a producer of domestic culture. And so I think that's the other really large shift is that Yugoslavia started to export popular culture. And we certainly think of that mostly like in the rock bands and rock groups. But more than that, I I think Yugoslavia actually, and especially the urban centers, became sites where culture was produced and then uh, became global itself when it left the state.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Finally, I'm very curious to learn whether your research on the book um, has led you to somehow rethink the nature of the Yugoslav project and the Yugoslav historical experience in its entirety. Has Metropolitan Belgrade writing it and researching it um, forced you to adopt a different perspective on, on Yugoslavia as a historical entity?
2: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, I think one of the things that I was most surprised at is that I always, reading scholarship, assumed that Yugoslavia in the 20s and 30s was this really conservative place where the state had a lot of control, right? We think about authoritarian government. We think about a dictatorship. But then I was so surprised that in the same exact year that King Alexander I institutes the dictatorship. He essentially bans all irredentist groups. He bans um, all sorts of separatist political parties. He starts censoring the media. You have this impression that there's like a tight grip on the state. When I was doing research, that same exact year in 1929, mere months after the dictatorship was put into place and all these tight regulations were put into place, Radio Belgrade launches, a station that is broadcasting all sorts of foreign culture on the air. And Josephine Baker, an African-American famed Parisian performer comes to Belgrade, right? To me, that seemed like a contradiction of like tight grip of the state, control of culture and censorship versus actually a lot of stuff was going on that would have likely challenged the state. Uh, And and that in fact did challenge the state in many ways. And so I think one of the things that I, I most rethought as I was doing the book was that Yugoslavia was actually a lot more fluid and a lot more porous than it initially seemed in the scholarship. Um, I, I began to think about actually how flexible the identity of what Yugoslavia was becoming was, um, how much it could change or how much it was changing, uh, and how much it was influenced really in, in a global way. Um, I would always wanted to really tell a global story of Yugoslavia, and I always wanted to tell a story that reached beyond the political history and allowed the social, the cultural, the urban to shine through. Uh, And I think as I was doing it, I realized that that was completely possible. There's this amazing amount of uh, activity that was happening right underneath the surface surface of what we just assume is political, ethnic tension. There was so much more happening um, at the local level uh, and Now, of course, I'm I'm thinking about a new project on animals. And so that goes even beyond people uh, that I'm beginning to think about Yugoslavia as a place where there was so much possibility and activity um, that we can find as long as we scratch just a little bit uh, underneath that surface of just politics.
1: What a beautiful way to conclude. As a final question, could you say a few more words on what you are currently working on? How does your new project relate to what we have discussed today?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, this new project is about the history of animals in uh, Yugoslavia. And so, for me, I think animals were swept up in this human modernity that I've been thinking about and studying for so long. And I think animals left imprints on labor, on sustenance, science, entertainment, right? In many ways that we haven't really thought about yet um, as scholars. Uh, And so, what I'm proposing to do in this next project, and i have already I'm a couple of years in already working on it, is to think about this critical role that animals played in the transition of uh, Yugoslavia's agrarian order into an urban modern one. And so I think I'm going to take a broader scope here and think about the 20th century as a whole. Uh, but the idea here is to consider how humans and animals uh, interacted with one another, and moreover, how humans themselves interacted among one another in their dealings about animals. And so this could be anything from like animal husbandry, uh, to halal butchering, uh, to pet keeping. But my hope here is to, again, show the way that people interacted with one another um, as they negotiated everyday life uh, with animals, which were actually very, very, very present in both urban life and rural life altogether. So animals were there. I just want to know how they impacted humans.
1: Cannot wait to read more about it. (laughs) Good. Thank you so much, Dr. Babovich, for joining me and discussing your work for New Books in Eastern European Studies. I have immensely enjoyed talking to you today.
2: Thank you so much, Vlada. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you.